0: You may have heard stories, or maybe even know someone who says that uh, he or she is deconstructing their Christianity. Well, what in the world does that mean? And where might it lead? Well, we'll tackle this subject on today's Wisdom 828, where we're dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. Hi, I'm Bob Buchanan. Who are you? Who are so wise? There are podcasts and bloggers and books describing this new trend called Christian deconstruction, and it's become popular. The term deconstruction has been widely used in evangelical churches, but what does it mean and where does this term come from? Well, deconstruction is a concept in philosophy that I found very difficult to understand. So, in my research into the subject, I was greatly helped by John Bloom, who is the co-founder and a regular contributor to Desiring God Ministries. He wrote an article recently that traced the origins of this concept uh, and put it into perspective for me. So I'll give you a synopsis of Bloom's understanding and hope you'll find that helpful too. The concept of deconstruction started with the French philosopher uh, philosopher, uh, Jacques Derrida, who studied philosophy at Harvard, and the University of Paris where he earned his PhD in philosophy. Uh, During Derrida's studies and his work as a philosopher he coined this term deconstruction which was uh, even for Derrida difficult to define. He spent his entire life working out his philosophic system. Now Derrida was born in Algeria in 1930 and he died in Paris in 2004. He was influenced by major 20th century philosophers like the German philosopher uh, Frederick Nietzsche, uh, who had a profound influence on the modern intellectual thought of the 20th century, and the Swiss philosopher Fernand uh, de Saussure. Well, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, but probably not. Anyway, the most basic way to understand Derrida's work is that um, meaning and truth are personally created. They're not discovered and they're not revealed. So as a philosopher, Derrida tackled the ultimate questions uh, that we all ask, where did I come from? Where are we going? What's the ultimate purpose in life? But to answer these questions, Derrida thought it was absolutely futile to look into the works of the past writers because language is fluid. Truth, therefore, is fluid and it depends on how one individually conceives of the truth. Now, I think it's safe to say that our current popularity of uh, living according to my truth is a child of this philosophy. Derrida's project started by deconstructing language. That is, in order to discover what an author might have meant in his or her writings was to understand their truth according to their social, economic, or cultural influences. And here's what John Bloom wrote. For Derrida, there is no meaning outside of the text of the philosopher's written work. No absolute truth that uh, the writer is shedding light on for the reader. There's only the writer's construct of meaning. The meaning of truth represented in the text that he wrote. Now additionally, Derrida was distrustful of anyone who appealed to some authority uh, outside of uh, themselves. Appeals to authority like foundational works say, and physics was only a personal acquisition and the exercise of power. He believed that for anyone to claim truth, that is with a capital T, uh, that claim became an excuse to condemn those who disagreed. Now, Bloom admits his synopsis is unavoidably reductionist, and no doubt mine is even more reductionist. But Bloom's insights were helpful. When I tried to read Derrida's own statements and those who tried to interpret him, I found it impossible to follow. Derrida's system is a complex process uh, with many complicated systems that I'm sure most philosophers regularly discuss and understand. The problem for me is, I'm no philosopher. And so when we bring deconstruction over into the evangelical church, what is it that Christians are mean, meaning by the use of the term? Again, Bloom helps us by pointing out the positive and negatives of this. Another very helpful uh, distinction that he makes and to be aware of is that there are differences between deconstruction and deconversion. Deconversion is, uh, is uh, a term for those who actually depart from the Christian faith. What Christians seem to be doing is to engage in a process of critical thinking by questioning traditional Christian beliefs like Derrida. Christian deconstruction refuses to settle for pat answers or to recognize as authorities those who occupy privileged institutional positions uh, and, and to speak for God. And I take that to mean professors in colleges and seminaries and local church pastors. In other words, in the positive sense, Christians who deconstruct want to know what they believe and why they believe it. And if you were to ask why would Christians engage in this process, uh, the answers will vary from person to person. But I'll mention two motivating forces that arose during my reading. The most often reason was some tragic event in life had brought that person face to face with ultimate questions. It may have been the death of an infant or a tragic accident that leaves someone in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. When a tragedy comes like that, comes our way, The ultimate questions come with it. For example, in one story I read, it involved a young couple who joined a a megachurch's worship band. Uh, They were new believers, and they were very involved in the church. And the church band became so popular that they began to tour the United States and eventually Europe. And while in Europe, this couple visited the Nazi concentration camp in Krakow, Poland. And the wife's question was, how could a good God allow such evil? Now that's an important question and Christians should rightly grapple with it. When the couple returned home, they were blessed with a second child, but that child was born with Down syndrome. Again, the questions arose, but this time her husband had abandoned the faith, proclaimed himself an atheist, and as his wife said, he was a lot freer from the traditional constraints they used to live by. Eventually, they left the ministry. They started a blog and a podcast to help others who were struggling with a crisis of faith in order to help them find their way. A second painful experience that compounds the pain and the loss of a tragedy is that those who doubt or start questioning their faith don't find support where they'd expect it from other Christians or from Christian leaders. Often their doubts and questions were met with simplistic answers like, well, you just have to have more faith, or they were told, you shouldn't even be asking those kinds of questions at all. Just trust God. The negative side of deconstruction is when a Christian sets out to dismantle faith because of personal experiences, educational or scientific advances that seem to undermine the truth of scripture. Many progressive Christians have gone in this direction to find new expressions of faith in which they find themselves more comfortable. One of the typical stories that you will hear from Christians who affirm an LGBTQ son or daughter is like this, the emotional bonds of family are so strong and the relationships so deeply emotional uh, that the affirmations are usually based on those experiences of the relationship or because of new educational information or scientific studies about the subject. At worst, these deconstruction of this nature can lead to deconversion, which is the process of abandoning the faith altogether. Now, can there be a positive side to deconstruction in which Christians can rightly engage? Well, I believe there is. We're told in scripture, for example, to examine our faith carefully. Peter tells us to be prepared with reasons for the hope that we have. In other words, we should be able to articulate clearly why we believe what we believe. Luke tells us that we should imitate the Bereans in Acts 17 to receive, they received even the message of Paul, but then they put it to the test of Scripture. The Apostle John tells us not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirits. Test what's driving the teachings of those, if to to see if they are from God. Ask: Do these teachings align with other teachings in the Scripture? Does the teacher and his teachings have the same characteristics of Christ? Oh, it's completely legitimate to critically analyze the the, uh, traditions that we have as Christians because sometimes we'll probably discover that our culture has shaped our conduct rather than faith shaping our conduct. Jesus regularly challenged the Pharisees about imposing man-made laws that put burdens on people rather than to set them free, and the church has been just as guilty of that over the years. Christians are free to investigate the faith once delivered, and if we are careful and we come to a place where we are challenged to change our position on a teaching, we shouldn't be afraid to align with the truth. None of us has a corner on the truth, nor do any of us have all our doctrinal ducks perfectly in a row. Our disposition ought to be toward growth and increasing our understanding of the Lord who saved us so that we are transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Take it from the psalmist who wrote Psalm 73. He was really upset uh, with some of the things that he saw going on around him in the world. Ungodly people who seemed to get all the breaks. They got away with disobedience to God and they prospered in greater ways than the uh, godly. Their advantages added to the psalmist suffering for doing what the right things which uh, seemed to him like a disadvantage so he tried to think about this problem and he found it difficult Who wouldn't he came to a satisfying explanation when he went into the temple to worship god and then god reminded him that what happens to those who don't walk in the fear of the lord uh, it, 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 it puts their eternity in danger it's not a bright or happy time unless they turn to God. The psalmist's eternity was shaped by the fact that he was always with God who guided and instructed him through life. And at the end, the psalmist said, what else do I have in heaven but you? And since I have you, what else could I want on earth? The question of God's goodness and power and the presence of evil in the world is a life-shaping question that every Christian should study what the Bible has to say about it. It's a system of study the Bible uh, theologians call uh, theodicy, which is a branch of philosophy, by the way. Theodicy seeks to answer this most basic question. If God is good, why does he permit evil? A good place to start your study, actually, would be in the book of Job. You may not get all the answers that you want from the book, but you will get to know God better. And knowing God better, it's one of Christianity's greatest benefits. Well, that's all the time that we have for now. Thanks for watching. And thanks for uh, Steve Dyan behind the camera who helps to make Wisdom 828 press on in it's goal to stamp out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. You'll be of good cheer.